Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined today by Amanda Loudon. Hello, Amanda. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good, good. So last time we talked, you had taken a tumble on the trail. Yes, right? yes. So last we talked, I had taken a fall and I had kind of jammed up the joint between my tibia and fibula. And mm-hmm. it was really painful for a while, but I was able to get some good joint mobilization in there, do some rehab. And so now I'm cautiously making my way back. I'm always like, I I go a little over the top with how cautious I am on return from injury. Even, I mean, I was laid off, I think four or five weeks, but I just, I'm really conscientious of the fact that like at this age, you know, bone health Mm -hmm. and I don't want to stress fracture on return. So I've been taking my time and, but all's going well so far. And, and, uh, you know, I think next week, I'm going to add a fourth day back in and, you know, I'm getting there. How about you? Good, good. good. Well, I think patience is a trait we share because, <laughs> you know, the other times that I started back after my bulging disc, it just never felt right. Mm. There, you know, you know, we always say, listen to your body. I honestly yeah. try to go inside my body and hear what it's saying. Like it sounds super West Coasty woo woo, but I don't know. It was just always saying bad idea, bad idea. It's good to listen to that. Yep. Yep. And, you know, I tell myself, hopefully life is long. And I knew there would come a day when that I would be able to get back out there. And now when I'm out there, it just feels so right. And mm. I come back and I don't, I don't, my, you know, I'm not all hinky when I get back or like I had to, when I got immediately, when I got back from my run, I had to drive my younger daughter to the pool for her lifeguarding duty. And when I got out of the car, I'm like, look at that. I can stand up and walk immediately. I'm not here being like, okay, unfold. Now right. work that kink out. You know, I was like, okay, I'm good. And now I'm going to walk upstairs without thinking about it. And 
So it, uh, it feels good. So I'm, I'm up to four miles at a time. I think I'm going to ease up to climbing it up to five miles at a go. And I mean, I guess hearing you say that you're going to add a fourth day, I think I'm going to consistently add, make sure I'm getting in that third day mm. at this point. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. great. That's great. I, I think like right around the three day mark is, um, three days a week markets where you start feeling like you're doing it regularly, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that it's a major part of your life again. Yeah. Because before this, I was doing two quote full days, you know, where I do four miles and then one morning that on Wednesdays I would play pickleball in the evening. So I didn't want to tire myself out. So right. I would do two or three miles. So, so now league is over. So I can definitely wholeheartedly add that day back in. Excellent. Yep. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. So uh, speaking of pickleball, I'm just curious, what level do you play at in the league now? Where are you? So I have my first tournament this Friday. Uh, as mm-hmm. this. So uh, I'm very excited. Yeah. It'll be a week ago as people listen to this, but I play at 3.5. Okay. So okay. that's what, that's what I, I should say. That's what I am. And that's what I play at because a lot of people sandbag. And yeah. So that four O's play at 3.5 yeah. or, and so for people who don't know pickleballers, there's rankings and it's, it's largely self-determined. I mean, there's not a, you know, it's not like you go to uh, the DMV equivalent for pickleball um, <laughs> and yeah. get and get yeah. ranked or anything. So, yes. Yeah, so my partner and I, we debated playing down, but we're both pretty much rule following nerds. So we're like, we should wear 3.5s. We should play 3.5. <laughs> it, nice. it is age ranked, though. So we will okay. be playing people within our age group in the okay. same ability. Yeah, there's going to be the it's a big tournament from what I understand. There's. Um, I think maybe 200 we're playing on the day that's only women's doubles. And I think there's about 200 doubles teams. Interesting. So, yeah. 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 Oh, it's yeah. great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an all day affair. So I'm going to, you know, pack my goo and my hydration tabs. Taste <laughs> <laughs> <Pace> yourself. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm a big fan of Trader Joe's dried mango on. That's just what oh, my kids want me. that. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you and I have been eagerly awaiting this recording, this episode, because for a second time, we have a journalist from National Public Radio, NPR, as a guest on our show. And back in 2017, Tamara Keith talked about juggling a non-traditional job with running. And today we have the privilege of a talking to Mary Louise Kelly. Mary Louise is a co-host of All Things Considered, NPR's weekday evening news program, and previously covered national security for the network. She's also the author of two suspense novels and a memoir published this year called It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs, a book I know will resonate with so many listeners, especially those of you who have teens finishing up high school. A resident of the D.C. area, Mary Louise is a longtime runner and a mother of two sons, one in college, the other in high school. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Mary Louise. It is such a pleasure to join you today. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so I need to start with a really dorky confession. Okay. And I've been told on several occasions that I sound like you, which which I take as a supreme compliment. And uh, uh, I'm, okay. a, I'm a huge pickleball player. And uh, once <laughs> on the pickleball court, I was playing with a woman I just met just been paired up with 
And the only words that I said were my name and a score or two. And from across the net, she yells, you sound just like that woman, Mary Louise on NPR. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's so fun. We'll get used to it. I, uh, I got recognized the other day by my voice walking out of a hot yoga class where I don't know if you've ever done this, but you look like death at the end of a hot yoga class. Like every pore in your body is evacuated. Sweat, and I said something, you know, to a friend who I was there with, and this other person chirp, chirped up and said, "Oh my God, you're Mary from NPR." And I thought, "Oh, please don't recognize me. Can you please delete this image from your brain." <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, speaking of sweating, uh, running—you you run in the DC area, which is in the summer. I know, um, as a local, a very sweaty place. But tell us a little bit about your uh, your running background. Sure. Well, I grew up mostly in Atlanta, which also gets quite sweaty, although I will say Atlanta, you know, as it's farther south, but it's in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And so the humidity, in my experience, except on the rare, really, truly awful day, does not approach the swamp that is DC. <laughs> despite that, despite the weather, uh, particularly in the summer, I have you know, I grew up running, didn't love it for many years, was kind of forced to do it by my dad, who was a, was a, a just a true, a true runner and a true believer and kind of, you know, pushed me out the door more than once. Um, and when we moved to DC about 20 years ago, it then as now was a way to get out and see my new city and get to know the neighborhood. And I've always had a pretty demanding work schedule. And it's always been something I could do when I had a minute and I didn't have to wait for anybody and I didn't need any special gear. And I'm lucky we live right in the city, but about, I don't know, 200 yards out my back door is one of the many trails down onto Rock Creek and the Rock Creek Mm, trails, which I don't know how far you can go on Rock Creek, but it's farther than I will ever run. (laughs) (laughs) So, so it keeps me challenged and depending on the day and how I'm feeling, I'll either do a pretty flat course, uh, you know, sticking close to the sidewalks in the Creek or on more adventurous days, you can get onto some pretty hilly steep trails. Um, but that is whether I have, you know, 20 minutes, which is what I had this morning because I was running around trying to get my teenagers out the door. I'll go and, you know, do a couple of miles. Or if I have longer on the weekends, I'll go do as long as I can manage to keep going. Um, and that's been my thing about three times a week, sometimes four if I'm lucky, mm-hmm. but always has gotten me, gotten me through here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, very relatable. And in your book, another lifelong habit is that you've been keeping a journal. Um, how do you keep mm-hmm. track of your workouts or log your miles or do you? I do. It That has changed over the years. For, for many years, I didn't. And that, I think, was one of the joys of running was I wasn't responsible to anybody. I wasn't tracking it. Um, I could just go do it when I wanted to do it. I get a little more vigilant when I'm training for something in particular. The last um, few years, I have been trying to do the Army 10-miler, emphasis on trying to, because (laughs) first of all, for years, it was one of those races that filled the second it opened. Mm. 
Um, you know, the registration would go live online. And by the time your computer had stopped crashing, it was full. <laughs> and so I tried for years without success to sign up. Then came the pandemic. And one of the small silver linings of the pandemic was that the race uh, went virtual, which meant anybody could run it. They didn't care how many people were running it virtually. And I signed up, which meant that when it has returned to being in person in real life, I had priority booking because oh. I could um, claim that I had run before. So I ran <laughs> virtually a couple times over the pandemic. It finally came back in real life last year, alas, on a day that one of my good friends was getting married. So I trained for it and then missed it. And my goal is that this year I'm going to run it. And I'm going to do it in person and wild horses will not stop me. But I mentioned that because it means I actually have to be ready to run 10 miles by October, which means I'm inching up a little bit, trying to do my 5Ks a couple times a week and then go a little bit longer on the weekends. And I have had an ankle injury that set hmm. me back and work travel that'll set me back a couple of weeks. But I keep plugging along and I now have just it's the most basic, <laughs> basic old school method, but I print out a calendar and paste it up on my kitchen wall and every month uh, with a pencil fill in how far I've gone and where I went. And sometimes it gets a smiley face if it was a really good run or some days it, it gets a, 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 a star, which means could use improvement. Um, but I write down what my pace was and that can be all over the map. I'm not fast. I never have been getting slower with each passing decade, but I keep plugging. So I'll, you know, usually be entering some number in the 10 or 11 mile a uh, minute per mile range as I'm getting longer. Mm -hmm. uh, but that all goes up and I write it in pencil on the chart. And then the next month, uh, a clean calendar goes up and I keep, I keep filling again. And is it on pink construction paper like it, it was the <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the chart you left for your boys when you went away on the business trip? That was a different chart. No, you're talking about no, this is just plain old printer paper. When my boys were small, as I say, I have always had a demanding work schedule and for most of my career traveled a lot and usually to some pretty far flung places. I've covered foreign policy and national security for many years as a reporter. And so when I travel, it has been often to war zones or hostile environments. And when my two boys were small, very small, one and three years old, on a particular trip in question that I was clearly feeling guilty about leaving them for a couple of weeks, I was headed to Pakistan, to the Afghan-Pakistan border. And I, yes, made made this chart out of on pink construction paper with a little box for every day of the two weeks that I would be away and stickers and smiley faces. And I, my thinking was they could check off each day and keep track of how long it would take me before I came back. And um, I realized with hindsight, that was completely for me. It was completely to assuage my guilt that I felt so horrible going away and was trying to be a great mom. Um, because I don't think they ever looked at it. I think at some point, either my husband or the babysitter hastily checked off every day and <laughs> handed it to me and said, we're so happy you're home. And here we are. And I forgot all about it. I'd thrown it in a file drawer and I came upon it. Oh, um, that's not nice. so you long ago. And yeah. yeah, I still have it. And I, when I looked at it and found it all these years later, cause that was 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Now I think what a privilege it is 
I didn't know it at the time. I hadn't realized, but to make a chart like that requires you to know, to deeply believe you stand so utterly at the center of someone else's universe that they need a pink construction paper chart to keep track of every day that you're going to be away from them. Who would I make that for now? Like there's no, you know, my teenagers love me, but they're not tracking down every day if I'm away on a work trip. It's a, it's a brief moment in a mom's life um, Mm -hmm. that you, that you are so completely at the center of your children's universe. And I look back on that and think what a gift that was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I liked about your book is it's definitely, you you talk about kind of multi-generational family relations and you know, something that really resonated with me and I'm sure with Sarah as well, who've both lost dads in the past several years, mm. you know, you're, you're tying with your dad and, and running, it's particularly touching. And, you know, I know for me, when, when, when it was the day of my dad's funeral, I went out for a run that morning and I was treated to this just absolutely glorious sunrise. And I felt like he was reaching out to me um, and telling me everything was going to be okay. And, you know, you talk about in your, in your book about how your dad, you know, a lifelong runner is, is still with you on your runs. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? It's so true. It's, it's such a force of habit to feel like I'm running with my dad, because as I say, I, I, I don't know that I would have been a runner without him. In fact, I can pretty, pretty definitively state I probably wouldn't have been, but he loved it. And he, when I was young enough that he could force me out the door, he did. And then he would coax and cajole me when I was a teenager. And then at some point in my young adult life, I realized I actually kind of like this. I actually kind of like going for a run and it's kind of fun to get to go with my dad. There aren't that many things that I do one-on-one with my dad. And this is something we can share and do together. And I lost him two years ago. He died during the pandemic and it was really hard to run races that I had only run with him, like the Peachtree Road Race, which I grew up running in Atlanta, where I where I mostly grew up. Um, I'd always run that with my dad. And it was really hard to force myself to sign up the first year without him. And to mm-hmm. your point about, you know, I love that image of the the beautiful morning when you lost your dad. I remember the week my dad died. I was in Atlanta trying to help my mom and was with him when he died. And a couple mornings later, got up and went for a long cry run. <laughs> I must have looked crazy just running mile after mile, just weeping. Um, and I got home and I kicked off my shoes and I realized I was kicking them off. Where I always kick them off in this kind of tray by the door and his were there. Um, mm. And I kicked mine off and set him next to him and just looked. My dad had huge feet. <laughs> like, this size 13 double wide and, and my shoes next to his still looked like baby shoes beside her father's. And um, mm. it took a long while before either my mom or I could stand to move his shoes from the door because it just looked right. It was exactly mm. where he'd kicked them off on whatever the last day was that he had run. And it is a gift that I do continue to feel him with me. I 
sometimes will find myself, you know, as I'm, if I'm struggling and thinking, oh, I could just walk this last mile or, oh, I don't really need to do one more loop, do I? And I'll hear my dad saying, come on, buddy, like you got this, come on. Mm. And I'll be talking out loud to him, just telling him something about my day. And he, uh, he gets me through that last mile. Mm. That's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So how about you've done races with family members, first your dad, now your brother, and you even roped your son. It sounds like son's into a few <laughs> 5Ks. Talk about what that's like. Yeah. My brother followed a somewhat similar trajectory of being forced and then cajoled and bribed out on family runs. We were one of those families that other people try to avoid that every holiday is like <laughs> the turkey trot, the jingle bell jog. Why don't we wake up on a really hot July 4th morning in Atlanta and go run six point? you know, two miles. Why, why, why? But we did. Um, and my brother now is a runner and yes, he's a good sport about doing this stuff with me. We did, um, we did a half marathon together and we're going to run the peach tree road race together next month. Mm -hmm. So I do have that. I have tried to encourage my sons who are teenagers, who are great athletes, which I definitively am not, uh, <laughs> could not be less coordinated. My boys are both great athletes at soccer and cross, and now they've picked up golf and tennis, and they've played baseball and just have done it all. Neither of them loves to run. And I keep hoping maybe with time, with age that will come as they age out of team sports and have a little bit more time and are still trying to keep fit. So I try not to nag them about it. I have enlisted them on the odd 5K and they always clobber me. That started years and years ago. <laughs> so I haven't figured out how to run with them yet. Um, but maybe as they say, as they, as they get a little bit older and maybe slow down a little bit, I keep hoping that age and wiliness will at some point overrule youth and speed, but we have not arrived at that point yet in our family. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear from the folks who allow us to bring you this free content. Please support them like they support us. Okay, with with running being such an important way for you to process thoughts and emotions as you've detailed to us, how often can you get out there for runs when you're on assignments in far-flung lands? Like clearly Many locations and situations that you're in are far too dangerous. So do you seek out treadmills in cases like that? Or do you just say, okay, I'm here in Pakistan and I can't go for a run today and I'll eventually get home and run? Yeah, I mean, it depends. Obviously, in a war zone, you're not going to head out for a run. Um, some, uh, countries I was reporting from Iran this year, and that is just tough as a woman on deadline, um, as an American woman to get out there and have the right gear and, and run. So there's some places where I won't do it, but I manage in all kinds of places. My producers are used to having to schedule, you know, we'll start 30 minutes or an hour later in the morning than we might have otherwise, because they know I'll be much better company if I've managed to make it out the door for a run. So I have, you know, woken up on assignment in a swamp in South Georgia and gone for a run and gone for runs all over Europe and parts of Asia. And yes, to treadmills, I've had some surreal runs on assignment in Beijing, I remember the mm -hmm. treadmill in the hotel was uh, stuck on, you could 
choose a video to watch and it would, you know, take you on some beautiful trail. But the only one I could get it to pull up was along the cliffs of California, Northern <laughs> California. And it is very weird running in Beijing on a treadmill uh, with this giant screen projecting you onto the, onto the cliffs of Northern California. But, but there you go. A little um, disconnect there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's, and it's like anything else it's, um, you know, running, I usually do, on my own when I'm here at home, but out about in the world, you find ways to work it into stories. Um, I, you know, my colleague Ari Shapiro, who's one of my co-hosts on All Things Considered and also a runner, did a great story uh, from India where he was reporting on climate change and pollution and basically just recorded himself on a run and how hard it was to breathe in the smog of Delhi on a bad air quality day. So was working the workout into his reporting. And I love finding ways to do that because it brings that story to life in a way that, you know, had he just sat there and cited statistics on air quality, it would never have driven home to you in the way that hearing him gasping as he's trying to hit the fourth mile managed to do. So yeah, I love finding ways to work it into my reporting and vice versa. The other, the flip side is I usually run by myself here. And that is in part when I'm trying to think through, okay, how do I want to organize an interview? Okay. What questions do I want to ask? How does it start? What's the lead? How am I going to write this? The space and the clarity that I get when I go for a run is so helpful. So often if mm. I have a really, really busy, stressful day coming up, I will prioritize, even if it's 20 minutes, um, just getting out the door in the morning before that, because it changes my outlook for the whole day. Mm. And are you able then to remember all of that when you get back? Or, I mean, do you take, do you, you know, record voice memos while you're out there? No, I don't. But I do. My children know that when I come in from a run, they should probably stay out of my way for 10 or 15 minutes because I will <laughs> sweatily sprint upstairs to my laptop and just download you know, mm. everything that I've been thinking. Um, and it is amazing for my daily journalism and as someone who writes books, I can sit here in front of my laptop struggling over a sentence and it won't come and I can't figure out what I'm trying to say. And then, you know, I think a lot of people who run have this experience. I'm curious whether you two do, but I will stand up, say, I give up, I quit. I can't think of how to figure, I can't figure out this paragraph. I'll go for a run and sometime right around when I start to sweat, like a mile in, it'll come to me and yeah. it'll just write itself and write itself and write itself. And then I'll come home. And before I've forgotten, like I can't get distracted by making the coffee or doing the you know, unloading the dishwasher any of that i just have to come write it down fast i think while i'm still sweaty is the key <laughs> yeah. um and then i can come back and make it pretty but it's it's there and it, so many problems solve themselves in my mind as i'm running mm -hmm. yeah agree yeah, sure. I, I, i'm a i'm a um, fellow journalist and i've even written about how running and motion are so essential to the writing process. And I think it's a super, super common thread, you know, with, with writers yeah. of all of, of all flavors that the motion just is essential. So, well, and I think whatever your career, I mean, whether you're a writer or not, I, without judging the way anybody else does it, I make a point of, I don't listen to podcasts. I don't listen to music when I'm running because I need my mind just to be untethered and roam. And yes. it solves all sorts of things. Sometimes things I didn't know I needed to solve. And yes. then I run <laughs> and the solution occurs to me. And I wonder about people who 
are constantly, you know, listening to something, even something really great and smart and educational. I don't know. But if you're not letting your mind just go in crazy directions when you go for a run, I wonder what you're missing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I love swimming because there is no, I, ah, I guess I, I sure. guess I could get a waterproof this, that, and the other thing, but that just seems a little overkill. So that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So has the topic of running ever come up in an interview you've done? Like perhaps someone, not many of us know, is a runner? Hmm. Oh, that's such an interesting question. I'm sure it has. Um, I mean, I will say this, there are ones where it comes up because the interview is about that, because I snatch up all the interviews that have to do with someone <laughs> who is, you know, I'm a total sucker for when a producer's like, so this guy is, you know, he's going to run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. I'm like, bingo. Sign me up. I want to talk to him. So I do actually go out of my way to, you know, it's whether it's a marathon interview or someone who's overcome just unbelievable odds. I'm about to interview a former Marine Corps sergeant who served in Afghanistan, was in a helicopter accident and had her left leg amputated below the Mm -hmm. knee. And despite that, has decided uh, to climb the seven summits. So the seven, the highest mountain Mm. on each continent, on the seven continents. And she's done six of them. And she just had to turn back from climbing Mount Everest. She got within, I think it was a few hundred meters of the top and Mm. they didn't have enough oxygen to swing it. Um, So we'll see how that conversation goes, but that's the kind of thing that really interests me. And I think what intrigued me about that is the idea of turning back because of the safety for her team. And Mm -hmm. also just that I couldn't come anywhere near climbing any of the mountains she's climbed. Um, And I'm not an amputee and I'm curious what motivates her. So I find those type stories of people pushing themselves to the limits of their physical ability and then beyond Mm -hmm. the courage and the decision-making that go into that is fascinating. I mean, no, nowhere near like my daily three mile jog, obviously a <laughs> totally different universe we're talking, but, but I love doing interviews about those type of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to go back to something you mentioned in the book and that was um, running the New York city marathon. It sounded like it was kind of a one and done event. Is that, is that true? And and I'm curious as to why, you know, so many runners do a marathon and then they just can't wait to do the next one so that they can, you know, bring their time down or whatever it might be. So I'm just curious. I ran the New York City Marathon um, with my husband in oh, what year? We're talking the late 90s. I had always wanted to do a marathon, exactly as you say, as a runner. I wanted to challenge myself, and that was the challenge. And I thought New York sounded fun and that I wouldn't get bored because there'd be a new borough to jog (laughs) through and experience, you you know, uh, every hour or so. Um, And my dad, who was not running that one, but flew up to New York with my mom and cheered me along. Uh, We're at the finish line. So that was great. I don't think I ever was worried about my time or getting faster. I probably would have run another one, but not long after that, had my first kid and then had a second and was caught up in work. And suddenly the years passed and I had run that first one when I was on the cusp of turning 30, I want to say. 
Um, and it occurred to me it wasn't going to get easier at 40. And then when I passed 50 a year or so ago, I just thought, I love running. I loved running a marathon. I don't know that training for a second one is actually getting to do my body good. I think, on, mm. I think it could do the reverse on my knees and hips at this point. Um, and I say that with deep and sincere admiration for all the people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond who are out there running marathons. I just know that my knees are creaking as I walk up the stairs these days, and I'm trying to take care of my body and keep it through running and through eating right and through this yoga and Pilates on the side um, so that I can run whatever distance I can run as long as I can, if that makes sense. I don't want to trash my knees to run a marathon if that's going to mean I can't run four miles when I'm 80. Yeah, (laughs) That's the goal to me. That's the goal. I want to be able to run when I'm an old, old woman. I want to go out there and go for the world's slowest jog. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think we all are when we put together our about on our, of our team on our website and we had all a couple of questions for people to fill out and pretty much everybody was like, you know, what's your goal? Oh, I want to be able to run into old age. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So one recurring observation in your book that I particularly loved is that you don't always know when something precious is happening for the last time, such as your son calling you mommy before switching to the less childlike mom. So do you have any instances of this happening in your running? Maybe, um, like, I mean, I don't think you knew when you crossed that New York city finish line that, that, okay, this is my, my one and only marathon. No, I certainly didn't. And I might've maybe tried to do something about it had I known that. Um, (laughs) but, but here we are, we are where we are. I said, I don't worry about speed and I don't. And that's partly self-preservation because I have never been a fast runner. I've always been, I've determined I'm not going to quit runner, Um, (laughs) but I've never been particularly fast. When I was 16 and 18 years old, I was bringing up the rear on my high school track team. But I suppose, you know, you, you really see it when you, when you raise children, in my case, two sons and they're tiny and you can of course outrun them and scoop them up. And then (laughs) it's such a surprise when one day you realize gosh, they're faster than me. Like I'm sprinting as fast as I can possibly sprint and I can't keep up. And I now have moments, as I say, I I probably get a little bit slower every few years. I don't particularly care how long it takes me to run three miles other than that I don't have all day and it would be nice to be able to, you know, (laughs) sleep an extra 10 minutes in the morning and not not have it take me an hour. So I do some, you know, I try to challenge myself and uh, sprint 100 yards here and there, figuring if the goal is to run faster, then one way to accomplish that is to push myself to run faster. So Mm -hmm. this morning I was out trying to crank in, crank out three miles and doing my, you know, now I'm going to sprint for 100 yards or I'll sprint to the next stop sign or I'll sprint to the light turns, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, some days, these days, I have moments where I'm in my sprint and I'm looking down at my phone app and it says I'm running an 11 minute mile. <laughs> and I think, okay, this is me flat out sprinting and it doesn't look any different <laughs> from when I thought I was doing a slow warm up job. And that has been a surprise. Um, because I've always been, you know, fit enough and considered myself a runner. And I um, I realized that my flat-out sprint is pretty darn slow these days, and that <laughs> snuck up on me. I suppose I wasn't expecting that. 
So you mentioned in the book that you developed significant hearing loss in your 40s. Um, Mm. Does being severely hearing impaired ever affect you on your runs? You know, safety wise, anything like that, that that concerns you with with that? It does. Yeah, I, um, I got hearing aids in my early 40s. So I've had them about a decade now. I don't run in them because moisture is not good for them and Mm. I sweat when I run. And so um, I tend not to wear them. And the consequence of that means I don't hear a lot. This is good in its way. As I say, I love just letting my mind roam free. I don't listen to podcasts and music partly because I love that, but also because I can't. <laughs> because mm. If I don't have my hearing aids in, they're not Bluetoothing anything and I can't hear anything. I love that freedom. It doesn't usually bother me. I, there, you know, yes to your question about does it ever pose challenges? I'm pretty good about looking for cars. I'm pretty good about not running alone at night. All of those things. I will say bike riders scare the bejesus out of me because Mm. I cannot hear them coming. And um, if I am on a trail and somebody is whizzing up behind me, um, you know, I try to be cautious. I don't just uh, cross from one side of the street or the sidewalk without looking. Um, But if you can't hear them, they, they come up on you fast. And I've had a couple of close calls where I think, where they, you know, they'll nearly hit me and say, lady, you know, I rang or lady, I yelled. Mm. And I thought, and I think, I'm sure you did. <laughs> I can't hear it. And, um, and I have, I have wondered sometimes at, at, at what point I will maybe think, okay, this is not working. I need to figure out a different plan. Um, but my hope is that by then, maybe I'll have hearing aids that are, that are waterproof and I'll be able to switch them out or that there will be some tech solution that will, that that will not be the thing that ends me running on trails because I love to run on trails. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's just shocking that they're not waterproof. I mean, you, you can't really be the only be. person who wants to wear them when you're active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, totally, mm-hmm. totally, mm-hmm. totally. Um, okay. So riffing on the subtitle of your book, do you feel these final years of having your younger son at home before he graduates high school affords you any do-overs? Yeah. <sighs> It's such a tough one. So yes, the subtitle of the book, The Year of No Do-Overs, sprang from my oldest, who last year was heading into his senior year of high school, and I had missed I had missed a ton because of the demands of my job and um, had specifically missed a ton of his soccer games, which tend to happen on weekdays around four o'clock, which is the exact time that all <laughs> things considered, my show goes on air and I cannot be in two places at once. So I'd always missed his games and I, it suddenly dawned on me if I'm going to make a different choice, I got to make it right now. This is the year of no do-overs. I really believed that as I was writing it and it now occurs to me that he's off. He's just finished his freshman year of college, but now my younger one's about to be a senior in high school. And this is the real (laughs) year of no Mm do-overs. I mean, I will tell you what it does is a radical reordering of priorities. I, mm-hmm. um, as I speak to you, am declining speaking invitations. I was just uh, declining a couple things via email um, that would have required overnights away from home. And they looked really interesting. And I'm honored to be asked and would love to do these someday. But ain't going to be this year because I want to be home. 
I'm also trying to figure out my fall schedule again because the conflict hasn't changed. All things considered still goes on the air <laughs> at four every weekday. And my son's soccer games are still at four on the weekdays, um, specifically Tuesdays and Fridays this fall. So I am <laughs> wish me luck. Um, mm-hmm. actually about to speak to editors and try to figure out a fall schedule that will allow me to be at many, if not all of them, um, mm-hmm. which will mean I'm not on the air. And uh, there are trade-offs involved in that, but this is a finite period. And the, um, I suppose, you know, we all have kind of words we try to live by or things that we hold in our heads and in our hearts when there are difficult decisions to be made. And one of mine has always been, there'll always be another story Whatever the story is, I want to go cover it. There's some other journalist who can do that, but there is nobody else on this earth who can be a mom to my sons. And Mm. while I will always be their mom, and that's always going to be my most important job, I've I've got this one last year to be very present um, while my son is here. And uh, that is going to guide a lot of my choices this next year. Yeah, yeah, totally get that. Well, so related to all that, my big takeaway from your book is that as a parent, you really were there when it mattered, as are most moms who are trying their best in this 18-year juggling act. And do you feel at peace with that? You know, I feel more at peace with it than I did when I started writing the book. I was very, I was scared um, because I didn't know how this book would turn out. And I wrote last year in real time and wasn't sure what my takeaway would be. And I suppose one takeaway is I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. As you say, we're all doing our best. But on the one hand, yes, I think for the really important stuff I've been there, I hope and like to think that my kids know it and that I've done all right as a mom. The other side of it is, and this was an unexpected thing that I discovered writing the book, that it mattered that I was there doing a job that was meaningful to me. Um, Mm -hmm. It mattered to me. And it also mattered. I'm a different journalist. I'm a different kind of reporter for being a mom. Um, Mm -hmm. Being a mother has changed the kind of stories that I think are important. I know it has changed the kind of questions I ask as I interview people and having parents represented in these jobs matters because it changes the kind of stories that journalists are covering. Mm. It has radically mm. changed how I go to cover a war. <laughs> I can tell mm, you that. Sure. Um, mm. And I wasn't expecting to think about it and feel proud. I feel proud of the work I've done. Um, I'm good at it. And I worked really hard to get where I am. And um I can't be in all the places at once and I'm (laughs) sure I have come up short and uh, in all kinds of ways. And there are many days where I feel like I'm hanging on by my toenails, but I um, at the end think, you know what, I've done all right. I've done my best and that's all any of us can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hearing you talk, I have to ask, have both your sons read your book? They have read the chapters that where they each feature prominently, they were first invited and then required to read these chapters. (laughs) And in part, I said, I want you, you have veto power over this. I'm not going to write anything that you feel uncomfortable putting out in the world. So if there's a story you don't want me to tell, uh, you know, it's gone. And so they both read and had interesting feedback. They of course 
remember some things different ways than I do. Um, and it sparked some really interesting family conversations. And I made some changes based on things they said. And in other cases said, you know what, that's just totally not the way I remember it. And when you write your, your memoir, like <laughs> you can tell your side. <laughs> well, I guess I just thought, I hope that they, uh, so I have boy girl twins who are my younger two kids. They just graduated high school earlier this month. Um, and, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, um, so, and I was pl- proud of myself for not sobbing all the way through your book. Mm-hmm. I, I was almost hesitant to start it because I was like, oh, it's just going to open all the floodgates. Yeah. And so, you know, like, I guess I've sometimes thought of telling my kids about how much I'm going to miss them so that they know why I'm wanting to spend extra time with them this summer. Like that, yeah. that I'm, I'm just not going anywhere this summer without them. Yeah. Um, and that, but then does that put a burden on them and you know, then they're going to feel guilty when they go away to school and all that stuff. So I don't know. I just thought like, Oh, this is easy. You can hand your kids the book and be like, here, this, here, Alexander, this is why mom's going to follow you everywhere you go this coming year. It's true. It's true. It is. The book is, it's, it's many things, but maybe the most important is it is a love letter to my boys. Yeah. And yeah. I don't even, you know, I haven't, I don't think either of them has read the whole thing all the way through. I think it, it was a hard book for me to write in some ways. And I think they're so close to it mm-hmm. that it might be good for them, you know, to, to read this in a couple of years, but I hope many years from now, they're able to look back and what they will have in their hands is it is a love letter. There's mm-hmm. just my whole heart and soul on display mm-hmm. in there and whatever mm-hmm. else they know or think of me, they will know how, how deeply, deeply they are loved. Mm-hmm. It's a real gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your candor with us, Mary Louise. This is a real pleasure. Uh, this was a total joy for me. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Wow. Oh, that was Amanda. <laughs> Let's confess that, that at we, the beginning, I was I texted you and Barry, and I'm like, Mary Louise Kelly is talking to us. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a bit like, wow, it's like interactive NPR. I know, I know. It's like, okay, keep your cool, keep your cool. <laughs> she's a mom. She's a runner. She's just like us. When I finished the book, um, I I looked over. My my boyfriend was here when I was reading it because he's he's a big fan as well, and I finished it. And I was like. You know, I, I think I think I need to be friends with her. I think that we're so much alike. <laughs> <laughs> <Of> right, <laughs> Mary Louise, you're my doppelganger. Okay, so <laughs> I can keep dreaming, right? I can keep dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag fan. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we are fresh off our retreat in Central Oregon, and it was just stupendous. I'm sorry you can be there with us, Amanda. And um, it reminded me how incredibly fun and truly how life affirming our retreats are just seeing people get together, be at ease, laughing, making new friends, running, being active, getting that sweat out, just like Mary Louise was talking about. Just there's something about that's really magical. So I hope um, that people listening will consider joining us for our next retreat. It's being held November three to six on beautiful, tranquil Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. And much like this Oregon retreat, we'll bring in guest presenters, go on group runs, eat delicious meals, do yoga, make loads of new friends and laugh. So much laughter. 
And it's all with the front row seat of the Atlantic Ocean from our host hotel, the aptly named Beach House. And Hilton Head may be our last retreat for the foreseeable future as we are debating pressing pause on our retreats for a bit. So if you've ever daydreamed about attending an AMR retreat now, now, right now is the time to make this dream a reality. So go to anothermotherrunner.com, click on events on the top navigation bar to find all the details and to register. Again, go to anothermotherrunner.com, click on the events on the top of the homepage. Our podcast today was produced in St. Paul, Minnesota by Barry Medour from Fire on the Bluff. Tibia, tibia and fibula. Uh, they are not rhyming words. Uh-huh. We got to be super buttoned up and professional when, when our NPR friend joins. <laughs> and whoo, we got through it.